Our gracious God, as your servant Carolyn now comes to bring your word, we ask that you will bless our hearts with insight, with wisdom, with love, with peace, and with the great knowledge that will make us better people tomorrow morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. Remembrance Sunday silence always draws us together in a unique kind of way, doesn't it? Whatever our age or our experience, in this moment, we allow the reality of war to touch us in some way. Some of us today stretch backwards in our imagination to memories of war. And some of us are stretching forwards, trying to imagine what those impacted and their families must have felt. And all of us, all of us, praying to find peaceful ways in resolving difference and withstanding aggression. It's right to be silent when silence is the only language that can do justice to the feeling, to the memory, to the imagination. Of course, there are two kinds of silence, aren't there? One is the frosty, hostile kind of silence. For our international visitors this morning, do any of you know the English phrase, being sent to Coventry? I tested this out with a Finnish member of staff in our office on Friday. She had no idea at all. So are there any of our own English-speaking people who have no idea of that phrase, being sent to Coventry? You don't. A lot of you don't. Well, apparently, it was a, a phrase that I grew up with, but it means to be shunned, okay? In the 17th century, in the uh, English Civil War in the 1640s, so the story goes, prisoners, I think they were sent the, from the Royalists, were sent from Birmingham to Coventry for their imprisonment. And one of the rules was that they were to be shunned by the public of Coventry. It's being considered absent or treated as dead. I've experienced this twice in my life. Once as a young woman with three small children by somebody else in a corps that we were leading, on both of these occasions, by the way, to this day, I have no idea why this happened. Um, one was for a short time in a previous appointment. The other one when I, was when I was roughly around eight years old, and it was in primary school, and as primary school children do, the friendships change, and often somebody gets excluded, and it was my turn. And for pretty much a whole term, there was somebody in my class who didn't speak to me. I was sent to Coventry, and not only by her, 
but, oh, you know it was a female now, but by also by um, the group of friends she'd managed to gather around her. You see, I remember it. I was eight years old. The other one, the other experience, well, that's just life, isn't it? But this one as a child was difficult. It's a metaphorical killing and often a prelude to violence. It's cruel. The other sort of silence is mutual. It's the recognition that what matters is so much more than we can ever say that we might as well honor that, that fact by just shutting up for a bit. And today's silence is this second kind, the recognition that in order to do justice in some small way to the cost of war, we need not tell another story or sing another song or give another opinion. Have you noticed this with wounded people? The important thing is sometimes not the stories they do tell, but the stories they can't tell. Memories that are unspeakable. Experiences too deep to be told. Yet, in this kind of silence, as we stand together, we can come to a solidarity which helps us struggle forward together for a better future. When I was studying for my MA in Christian spirituality, I had the most wonderful Catholic nun teacher. I hope she'll come here one day and talk to us. She's an amazing woman, Dr. Gemma Simmons. And Gemma, who I'm still in touch with, um, has Jewish origins. And she had a great uncle who, as a young man, lost all his family in Auschwitz. And you know, for the rest of his life, she told us, he never again allowed the name of God to be mentioned in his presence. What do we do with that? What words are there? Well, we asked her, we said, what did you do, Gemma? And she quoted Bishop Oscar Romero to us, and she said to us in the class, in the face of tragedy, there are times when it's best to say nothing and let the majesty of God appear. For the ancient Israelites then, and for us now, in the silence, the majesty of God appears this morning as Isaiah's vision of peace. You see, the land of deep darkness named in 9 verse 1 names a period of political oppression. People, a whole nation, have buckled under more than a century of incessant violence. And they've not just been caught up in actual war, but all that goes with it. They've also been caught up in a system of terror of war. And they've been caught up in the confusion of war that tends to breed enmity between neighbors because your farm has been destroyed and your vines have been desecrated. 
And because of the suspicion round every corner, you don't know who you can trust any longer. And the Israelites had faced over a hundred years of that. In these difficult conditions, darkness is a degraded experience and a living hell. And in that darkness and in that silence, both they, the, the Israelites, and we this morning are given these words. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. For unto us a child is born, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. In the Old Testament, any royal birth is always occasion for renewal. And these new king's titles that we have up there this morning, this baby king, they're kind of set out, says N.T. Wright, who I don't apologize for this morning for being inspired by some of his writing on this. But his titles are a kind of peace curriculum, N.T. Wright says. Attributes which will help this new king to rule in justice and peace after the darkness. This new tiny infant king will be groomed as the prince of peace who binds together brokenness into a transformed society. We call it a shalom people where fear and domination and oppression will one day be broken forever. And those in the court of the king all those disciples of the king, all those followers of the king, and all the people he rules are going to be schooled in the king's new culture of peace. And this will knit the community back together so that hunger and rage and revolt are done with. The irony is that when Jesus, Prince of Peace, eventually comes, like many war victims, he's going to be cut down in his prime by a brutal empire who did what brutal empires do. And here we are, says N.T. Wright, centuries of brutal empire after brutal empire, still after all this time, setting our hearts on Isaiah's ultimate vision of peace and justice. Why do we bother? What's the point? What's the point when we see what we see around us? And Fred Buchner goes on to say, no matter how much the world shatters us to pieces, we carry inside of us a vision of wholeness that we sense is our true home and beckons us 
Now tell me you, that you don't feel this in your bones this morning when you read Isaiah's vision. Tell me you don't feel it. At Christmas, we're going to read this text and we're going to omit the bits about the yoke of the burden, the rod of the oppressor, the tramping boots and the blood-stained uniforms because that's not very nice and that's not very Christmas. But they're really important today because these words are crucial to the given promise of Isaiah. The boots of the tramping warriors and the garments rolled in blood will be burned for the fire because basically they're done with. And it's not this morning that the good news insulates us, I guess, from the evils of war, for the attraction of war still seems to capture the imagination of nations. But the good news is that love is stronger than a mere absence of violence or threat. It opens doors, it knocks down border walls, it builds bridges, and it neutralizes fear at its very root. It's the antidote to fear and hate. And here, simply, lies our hope in God. God who transforms even hopeless situations. And so we have to, don't we, from deep in our bones, from deep in our sense of who we are and who God's created us to be, we hold on to the vision of peace Isaiah has given us, for which we then commit to pray and to work. Because it's a vision where peacekeepers are not actually finally needed because peace is finally established. And all creation is at peace with itself and with one another. And children flourish without fear. And there are no refugee crises because resources are just, justly shared and bread and water are freely available. And religious violence is done with. And justice reigns. And wisdom, compassion, and understanding really do govern world affairs. And the horrible memories of violence can finally be put away forever because peace reigns. Tell me that you don't feel your heart racing a bit faster when you hear this this morning from the words. N.T. Wright carries on and he says this, the world is still wondering how to get this. But we who live between the birth, death, resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth and the final kingdom in which justice and peace shall be knit together at last are entrusted with a mission. A mission not simply to save a few souls from the wreck of this world. That's, by the way, not how N.T. Wright thinks about the world. He's challenging that view because he says, God so loved the world, actually, and has promised to redeem it, nor to tinker 
with or unjust tweak unholy systems. No, he says, rather by prayer and courage, we keep painting the prophetic image of Isaiah. And we keep singing the song of Isaiah. And we keep rehearsing the divine drama of peace in our Sabbath worship and in our everyday lives. And by holiness and by hard work, we discover small practical ways of making peace in the name of Jesus. And it can be hard work when the rubber hits the road on the small stuff. It gets hard, but it is also holy work and it's healing work to listen well, to keep talking, to work things out together. Some turn up their noses and they sneer. They say it can't be done, but the promise is here in Isaiah's vision it's St. Paul's vision also of a redeemed creation. And it's the image of a new heaven and earth in St. John that we find. It's the Jesus vision of the kingdom of God for which he gave his life. And do you know what? Ephesians 2 verse 14 goes way further. It says, it's done. For Christ himself has done done it. He's brought the peace. He's united Jews and Gentiles and all of us into one people. When in his body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that divided us. And without this vision of peace, we will never know, I don't think, our true identity or our purpose in helping God's build God's peaceful kingdom on heaven, in he on earth as it is in heaven. But it's okay. It's done. Christ has done it. He's won the peace. And so we this morning, who live in honour of the Prince of Peace, are surely committed to saying it can be and it will be done. And every silent remembering is a call for us here and now, a kind of vocation to join the Prince of Peace in helping him restore this broken yet beautiful world that he loves. God knows we need that right now in our world. And Jesus promises peace beyond our understanding in the midst of our struggles, peace in the face of sadness and loss, peace when it appears that evil is triumphing, peace in the face of fear and violence and even despair. So may we rededicate our lives to follow the one who has given us the Prince of Peace. Jesus is Lord. God is redeeming the world. He will 
do it. Let's help to bring in the peace that we have already been given. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God of peace, shape our hearts according to your way of peace. Speak peace over our homes and those we love. Speak peace over our work. Speak peace over our church. Speak peace over our neighborhoods, our city, this city, our nation. Help us in our honest and imperfect struggle for peace, in the demanding peace of forgiveness and the longed-for peace of justice. And give us patience to wait for the completion of your peace so that the world may know Jesus, Prince of Peace. Amen.